The internet doesn't have all the answers. But that doesn't mean we can't find them. This is Under Understood. I'm Billy Disney. I'm Adrian Jeffries. I'm John Lagomarsino. I'm Regina Delay. Today, John finds a theme park so strange, it wouldn't even work in Florida. I am looking right now at a one, uh, two, a two-sentence Wikipedia article for a place called New Vietnam. Huh. I'll read you the entirety of the Wikipedia article. New Vietnam was a theme park proposed to be built near Cape Canaveral in the mid-1970s by evangelist Carl McIntyre and Giles Pace, a former Green Beret. It was intended to simulate what the Vietnam War was like during the height of fighting, featuring actors shooting blanks. Oh my god, this is like, what was Dolly Parton's place called? Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede. They changed it. They got rid of Dixie. They took Dixie out. Wait, really? Yep. We should clarify that that Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede was like uh, medieval times, the dinner and show place, but with, with the North versus South Civil War flavor. Yeah, it's Civil War era, North versus South. Half of the audience roots for the North, half of the audience roots for the South. So it's kind of this like revisionist uh, history whitewashing of the Civil War. Anyway. Right. New Vietnam. I can find absolutely no information about this anywhere on the internet, which makes me even doubt the validity of this as fact. The only reference on the Wikipedia page (laughs) is the Bathroom Readers Institute uh, in in the volume Uncle John's Awe-Inspiring Bathroom Reader. Nice. Only citation. This is insane. And there's nothing else out there about this? Okay, so if you go to the page for Carl McIntyre... Yeah, I'm there right now. It doesn't seem totally out of the question that he might have tried something like this because it seems like he was kind of a stunt guy. What? Like what? He urged in 1971 that a full-scale version of the Temple of Jerusalem be constructed in Florida. <laughs> nice. Or two decades later when he suggested that Noah's Ark be rebuilt and perhaps refloated off his conference center in Cape May. Yes. It would be a tourist attraction, said McIntyre, and it would forever down these liberals. Uh, Wow. (laughs) It sounds like he had a lot of ideas. Uh, also here in the, in his article, McIntyre also gained the public eye in the early 1970s when he organized a half dozen pro Vietnam war victory marches in Washington, DC. So it's also confusing because it sounds like he thinks that, uh, we won the war. Or does he think that, or does he want to create that narrative for some reason? So like, is his goal by making a theme park? Oh my God, it would have been Dixie Stampede. Right, exactly. Like Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede, but instead of the Civil War, it's the Vietnam War, and he's making a more family-friendly version of it so he can profit from it, I guess. I feel like it. I feel like the goal is to rouse respect for the troops of, like, look at what they've been through, you know? Yeah. I just imagine it like, you know, I would go to these theme parks where there'd be, like, Old West recreations of like a train robbery like you're on like a little train ride and then all of a sudden it turns into a train robbery 
Like I'm imagining like that, but it's like guerrilla warfare. Like you're right. Yeah. Right. You're in the jungle and then suddenly it becomes guerrilla warfare. It's like, Dis- it's like Disney's animal kingdom, except then all of a sudden it turns into the Vietnam war. Do we have a sense of how advanced this project got before someone was like, no, no, I don't think we have any idea. And maybe that's a more interesting question actually, because I mean, as tasteless as it is, it's Florida. There's a market for literally anything in Florida. <laughs> so if Carl McIntyre wanted to create this theme park, what stopped it from becoming real? What happened to New Vietnam? Coming up, John looks for answers in the place where all good answers come from. New Jersey. Okay, I'm back, and I've got some answers. And uh, let's just say that the answers here are a little darker than we thought they would be. So obviously my first stop was the Bathroom Readers Institute. That is the people who publish (laughs) the Uncle John Bathroom Readers. I imagine them having like a sprawling campus like like Yale or (laughs) Hogwarts or something. It's like Princeton. All the bathrooms are singles. Okay, so I I, I actually found the full write-up from... Uncle John's awe-inspiring bathroom reader. It gets more like awe-inspiring. Like, what a good yeah. poop. But that's the one that was uh, cited on Wikipedia. I guess I'll, I'll read you a little bit of uh, the New Vietnam page. It starts off, um, most families vacation in Florida because of the warm weather and the abundance of theme parks. You can shake hands with Mickey Mouse at Disney World, feed the dolphins at SeaWorld, and duck and cover in New Vietnam. Well, at least that was the idea. Background. In 1975, Reverend Carl McIntyre, a New Jersey fundamentalist preacher and pro-Vietnam War activist, began construction on what was to be New Vietnam. Spread out over 300 acres of land in Cape Canaveral, Florida, McIntyre and his partner, former Green Beret Giles Pace, envisioned a theme park where people could get a glimpse of the Vietnam War. What would the theme park look like? Here are a few of the attractions McIntyre planned. Tourists would take a sampan ride around a moat that encircled a recreated Vietnamese village with a neighboring special forces camp. The perimeter of the camp would be surrounded with row upon row of barbed wire, punji stakes, and fake claymore mines to add to the atmosphere. We'll have a recording broadcasting a firefight, mortars exploding, bullets flying, Vietnamese screaming, McIntyre explained, while hired GIs shoot blanks at the enemy. Visitors would be encouraged to take cover in the barracks or station themselves behind a machine gun and get in on the action. Oh my god. Vietnamese people, real refugees from the real war, would travel through the village in traditional outfits and make New Vietnam come to life. The bathroom reader doesn't list its sources, like, at all. So I I looked into this, and now they're owned by a company called Portable Press, And their website is not very helpful. It says, quote, We use reputable newspapers such as Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and USA Today. Magazines like Time, National Geographic, and Newsweek. Um, So I emailed them to ask directly where they heard about New Vietnam. Unsurprisingly, I still haven't heard back from them about that. No accountability. But in the meantime, I started looking around for more information about Carl McIntyre. So, like that Wikipedia listing on him said, this guy was, let's call him colorful. He was 
of course, an evangelical minister and an activist, but he was also way more than that. I googled around and found someone named Randall Balmer who had written uh, about Carl McIntyre. In the Encyclopedia of Evangelicalism, Balmer writes that McIntyre was, quote, the P.T. Barnum of American fundamentalism. Whoa. Such a good phrase. Um, So he goes on to describe how McIntyre basically spent his entire life on this quest for pure fundamentalism. Uh, McIntyre was prolific in his media output. He published a weekly newspaper called The Christian Beacon starting in 1936, and that continued on for decades to like the mid to late 70s. And he had a radio show called The 20th Century Reformation Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get this just as straight as can be. The wages of sin is death. It was kind of a mixture of preaching and self-aggrandizement. Some of these people are worried about Dr. McIntyre having to go to jail. And they deeply concerned about it. Well, I may have to go to jail, but I told them that more than half of the New Testament was written by jailbirds. And on the show, he would very frequently speak out against communism in all its forms. I cannot accept, ladies and gentlemen, and we cannot accept communism as a social system. So this is a familiar type, right? Uh, Evangelical conservative radio host. (laughs) Right. Remember Randall Balmer, the guy who wrote the encyclopedia? Uh, he also wrote something else that was way more interesting personally to me. So I found this issue of Christianity Today from May of 2002. And Balmer wrote an article called Fundamentalism with Flair. This was just a couple months after Carl McIntyre died. And this was kind of a long write-up about him. So let me read you from the beginning of this article. Until the end, his death at age 95 on March 19th, Fundamentalist empire builder Carl McIntyre was a tireless opponent of theological liberalism and political totalitarianism. At the height of his influence during the Cold War, McIntyre's empire extended from Collingswood, New Jersey, the home of his Bible Presbyterian Church and Faith Christian School, to Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, Cape May, New Jersey, and Pasadena, California. He ran a conference center in Florida and had designs for a theme park there that would have celebrated America's military campaign in Vietnam. Aha. So this is the only mention of McIntyre I could find anywhere that suggests that New Vietnam had any actual grounding in the real world. Uh, And so I had to talk to Randall Balmer. Hello. So Dr. Balmer is at Dartmouth these days. Uh, The... John Phillips, professor in religion at Dartmouth College and also director of the Society of Fellows at Dartmouth. He interviewed Carl McIntyre only once, but it was a little bit more notable than I'd even thought. I may have uh, had the the last interview he gave before he died. Dr. Balmer told me that Carl McIntyre was one of the most notorious fundamentalists of the 20th century. He was a contrarian about almost everything. He has a reputation, a well-deserved reputation as a kind of a crusty fundamentalist who was um, always in in, in everybody's face. But uh, I actually enjoyed my counter with him. So knowing that he'd mentioned this thing in his article, I asked Dr. Balmer about it. Um, I found a Wikipedia article, uh, and the title of the article is New Vietnam. And it says New Vietnam was a theme park proposed to be built near Cape Canaveral in the mid 1970s by evangelic oh, yeah. uh, by evangelicalists Carl McIntyre and Giles Pace, a former Green Beret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of dimly remember this. You know, reading about this, yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds like that sounds like a, a McIntyre uh, enterprise. <laughs> 
Okay, so he only had this one interview with McIntyre, and he did not use it to ask about his ill-fated theme park. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't real. It, knowing what you know about him, could he have been serious about this? Oh, sure. I expect he was serious about that. He had all these. Uh, he had all sorts of crazy uh, schemes going. And you know, I, I guess if you would look for a kind of more contemporary analog, I suppose it would be Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church in oh, wow. Topeka, Kansas. So this one kind of took me by surprise. Uh, he's talking, of course, about Fred Phelps, the famously bigoted and generally... Horrible. Yeah, a horrible late minister of the Westboro Baptist Church. God hates America. Vile land of the sodomite damned. The most ungrateful and the most arrogant anti-God nation that ever existed. This is the guy who would, like, lead groups of people to protest on college campuses, right? Yeah, like, or women who were getting abortions. Right, that's that's the guy. He died in 2014. I, I'm not convinced Carl McIntyre was quite as, like, hateful as Fred Phelps. But knowing what I know now, he was definitely xenophobic. And he had some of the same tendencies, especially, like, how he treated publicity stunts. There would be parallels between the two, I think, in, in terms of their uh, self-assurance and their abilities to to um, gather a crowd. And I think in the, there's a part of him that, that kind of craved uh, validation and legitimation from even some of the people that who he disagreed with. About the time I wrote this article, actually, I had a friend who was the director of the library at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. He got a call one day from somebody in Collingswood, New Jersey, and apparently they were getting ready to cart away of archives of, of files from McIntyre and his operations there. Hmm. And somebody kind of called him at the last minute and said, do you guys have any interest in this? And Steve said, yes, of course. And and when McIntyre found out about it later, he was apparently very very gratified that Princeton <laughs> had his had his papers, and he came to Princeton a couple of times, and they had some events and so forth. And he was, uh, you know, quite quite pleased about the whole thing. Oh my God, you guys went to Princeton? Well, around this point in the conversation, I started getting ideas about those papers. It would. You, do you think there is any record of this anywhere? Like, could it be in those Princeton files? Yeah, well, sure. Oh, yeah, it could be. Absolutely. And I don't know if they've indexed this, this stuff or not. Um, as I remember, it was a room, probably, what, 20 by 40 feet <laughs> with uh, pallets on the floor and, and boxes on the pallets. But yeah, I would expect you'd find something there. Well, uh, I looked into it, and sure enough, there are 669 boxes of Carl McIntyre's things at Princeton Theological Seminary Library. Uh, obviously, this is a lot to go through, so... I asked Adrian to come with me to Princeton and we could split the work up. So Field trip. <laughs> so Adrian and I met at the Port Authority to take the bus down to Princeton. And no John. Did you guys know, have you guys traveled with Adrian recently? No. No. Adrian, this is a complete sidebar. Getting in touch with Adrian <laughs> in the morning was incredibly difficult. I, I texted you before I left yeah. my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I, yeah, I texted you and I was like, I'm here. What do you want from Starbucks? Got no response. And I'm like, okay, she's probably in the subway. Like half an hour went by and I finally find her by sight. Yeah. I think your phone's not on and not getting stuff. It's in my backpack. Uh, it didn't say delivered. And she's like, oh yeah, I had my phone in a Faraday cage. Mm, it's in a Faraday cage. I was about to take it out. 
and then she takes it out of her bag and she has a literal <laughs> a literal Faraday cage that she keeps her phone in. Wait, so when you say in a Faraday cage, you mean literally in something that prevents signals from getting in and out? Yes, like a special little pouch. They're always watching me. Why do you have Faraday? <laughs> So we got on the bus, uh, we got to Princeton, uh, we met our way to the library. Hi, how are you? And then we, found, we finally found this tiny little back room with these librarians who were like, why yes, sign in here. Uh, this is a guy named Ken Henke, he's the curator and archivist there. There's a listing of the order that goes in. We kind of offhandedly asked him if he knew anything about the McIntyre collection and whether he could help us, and he knew, it turns out, a ton about uh, the Carl McIntyre collection, and he told us that it's actually the largest one in the collection. I don't think it's in proportion to the importance of the person. I feel like it's in proportion to the prolificness the of that person. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Carl McIntyre must have saved every piece of paper that he ever owned. Actually, do you want to each do a box? Sure. And right away in this box... Uh, containing, quote, Cape Canaveral stuff, I found something extremely weird. Wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Cape Canaveral Vietnamese. Are you keeping it in order? Uh, I took some photos of all of this. It's an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. At the top, it says, Cape Canaveral Central, Cape Canaveral Beach Gardens, Developments by Shuford Mills. Palms East Residential Suites. So this is a letter, and it's dated June 25th, 1975. And this letter goes, Dear Sirs, enclosed is the itemized bill of expenses incurred by the Vietnamese for the month of June. Sincerely yours, David L. Hulley, Manager, Palms East Apartments. And then on the next page, it's a list of 12 apartment units and the breakdown of lodging and electricity costs. And then there's another page of incidental expenses, like miscellaneous supplies. <laughs> Pots, pan, dishes, glasses, knives, forks, spoons, coffee pots, balls for $400. And then this all happens again the next month, in July of 1975. There's no explanation for who the Vietnamese are, or what they're doing in Cape Canaveral, or why Carl McIntyre is supposedly paying for their housing. So this made me curious, um, and and since being at the library, I have found out a little bit more about what was going on um, that would have gotten a group of uh, Vietnamese refugees actually into Cape Canaveral in the first place. So I, I spoke to Dr. Yen Espiritu. Uh, she's a distinguished professor at the University of California in San Diego. My work deals with um, immigration and refugee studies. Dr. Espiritu has written a lot about Vietnamese refugees. Her book, Body Counts, is a really good resource on this. So in the wake of the Vietnam War, around 130,000 Vietnamese were resettled uh, really all over the United States, and that included in Florida. One of the reasons that the Vietnamese might have gone to Florida was because of the policy at the time that they would disperse Vietnamese to um, every single state in the country, which uh, disabled them from harming any single community. When the Vietnamese refugees from the war arrived in the States, the government would kind of disperse them to kind of random areas in the country because there was some concern that this large influx of people would supposedly, like, quote-unquote, damage local economies. So when the Vietnamese refugees first came, there was a lot of objection 
being resettled in the United States. So you've got these pockets of displaced Vietnamese, and it's it's very possible that a group of them would wind up in Cape Canaveral. So it is within the realm of possibility that Carl McIntyre sponsored some Vietnamese refugees. And in fact, his newspaper was, I mean, Adrian, you can attest to this, his newspaper was full of talk about refugee relief work. Um, and that wasn't just in the U.S., but all over the world. Right. I was skeptical that some of the pictures of refugees and all the helping refugee talk was about fishing for donations, which Carl McIntyre was always doing with some narrative or another. But it, it does seem like he did pick up some refugees in Florida. Right. But I do think you're also right to be skeptical that this might have been a scam. I mean, I don't know if it's too early to say this, but I'm just going to say Carl McIntyre struck me as kind of a schemer. His <laughs> newspaper is full of requests for money. Like every page is basically him extorting money from his readers I just got a very intense grifter vibe from him. Right, yeah. So in the Cape Canaveral boxes, we also found a bunch of land deeds, but none of those were labeled with what they were actually for. So like most of the land, uh, there was a lot of land too. It was like hundreds of acres. Um, Most of that land was likely for Carl McIntyre's Reformation Freedom Center compound. Um, The New York Times wrote in 1971 that McIntyre somehow bought 700 acres of land in Cape Canaveral to build sort of like this this Christian compound vacation destination. Hmm. Uh, we know Carl McIntyre was selling trips to Florida for like-minded people to go, I guess, hang out down there and get preached to by him and others who were like him. <laughs> I can see the flyer now. <laughs> get preached oh, to. We saw the flyers. The ads feature a lot of older white Americans. Mm-hmm. So after the Florida stuff, Ken brought in a few volumes of the Christian Beacon, those ones that were like bound in the books. Um, and he suggested that if something was on McIntyre's mind, you could find it in the Beacon. Uh, he was super right about that. I loved this newspaper. In in many many ways, they're a lot more interesting than the boxes of even his personal stuff. So, for one thing, it makes sense that he had something in Cape Canaveral because he was really into space and aliens <laughs> and UFOs. Right. Every every single week had a sidebar column dedicated. It was called UFO Reports. Uh, <laughs> he also would do this thing where he would reprint stuff from other newspapers, like, obviously with no permission. And then sometimes he would, like, scribble his own notes on, like, this New York Times article about him or whatever, like, pointing out its supposed inaccuracies. You know, like, if your uncle will send you, like, a newspaper clipping in the mail and have, like, written oh, yeah. exactly. sidebar notes. Exactly. It was like, like he was reprinting those in his newspaper. It is really interesting. These people always existed before social media. It's just, yeah. At the time, they just scribbled on a newspaper and threw it in a box and it ended up at Princeton. (laughs) (laughs) But like the Christian Beacon here was, it was released every week and it's maybe 10, 15 pages, like large newsprint pages, every issue. You flip through them in order and you can very, very clearly see what was on Carl McIntyre's mind at any given point in time. So like in 1970, There are these articles upon articles about the Freedom Center in Florida as it was being built. Um, In 1973, this is a very good story. In 1973, McIntyre's troubles with the FCC heated up, and there's this year-long fixation on the FCC thing. He 
purchased a radio station called WXUR in Philadelphia in 1965. And one of the things he would do with that station is basically preach on the radio. And it's a strange thing in this country when those of us who believe what the country always stood for, the kind of individualism that made America great, and we believe in separation of church and state, and we believe in states' rights, all of a sudden we become the scoundrels. So in 1973, the FCC revoked WXUR's license completely. And they did that uh, because of something called the Fairness Doctrine, which we won't really get into, but basically it meant that broadcasters needed to present controversial issues uh, in a manner that was honest, equitable, and balanced. So in 1973, because of this Fairness Doctrine, the FCC revoked his license and essentially shut him down. The original InfoWars. Yes. Exactly. So InfoWars, our listeners may know, is a website run by a guy named Alex Jones that publishes, among other things, right-wing conspiracy theories. Zuckerberg and everybody needs the earth cleansed of you to enjoy the new future. None of them have screen time. None of them are allowed to watch television. None of their children, like Steve Jobs, are allowed to be online. Alex Jones and InfoWars relatively recently got into a bunch of trouble for perpetuating some pretty dangerous hoaxes, and they were removed from... YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, um, and Alex Jones obviously has vehemently complained about this. So you can see the similarities with Carl McIntyre's situation. The FCC shuts down his radio station. He screams censorship. The liberals got him. (laughs) After the shutdown, we see months and months and months of Christian Beacon articles about injustice by the FCC. He's asking readers for their support. Uh, He's got like template letters for readers to send to Congress to lobby them to let them back on the air. Um, And he would also reprint these letters that he would get from supporters in the Christian Beacon that would say like, oh, like Dr. McIntyre, he wasn't really a doctor. Dr. McIntyre, like I already sent you a hundred dollars, but like here's another thousand dollars because like this fight is so important. Right, right, right. And this is like something he would do all the time on the radio, too. Is there anybody sitting out there that has a million dollars they'd like to get rid of for the cause of the gospel and freedom? I'm asking you for it, my friend. If you've got it, or if you could leave it in your will to us, and then all the rest of you don't have anything like that, and that's nearly all of us, I want to say to you that a dollar a month would be an awful lot. Ten dollars a month. Twenty-five dollars a month. Or if you'd just like to send your tithe, whatever it is. $1,000 will start us on a new radio station, folks. Uh, and, and then we start seeing small sidebar reports that ramp up, and they're about plans to put a ship just off the coast of New Jersey. Uh, that's when he procured this uh, minesweeper. That's Dr. Balmer again. And uh, outfitted it with a radio <laughs> transmitter and uh, brought it up to Cape May, New Jersey. And then he went out uh, just beyond the three-mile boundary for international waters and began broadcasting Radio Free America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, he was literally broadcasting from a boat? Yes, he was literally broadcasting from a boat. And Radio Free America is out on a placid, calm sea today. And this went on for around three months. And so the Coast Guard, of course, goes out and reels him in, and, <laughs> and that's the end of it. You know, he's certifiably crazy. But then, as soon as like this, as soon as he was shut down on the boat, though, the WXUR stuff just fades away from the beacon. Yeah. 
It was so weird. It was like his primary obsession, and then he got some other obsessions. And even when the FCC went back on it and he won, the Christian Beacon didn't make that big a deal of it. So this is pretty typical of things that were going on in the Christian Beacon and in Carl McIntyre's mind. So we start seeing a flare-up of reports on opening churches in Africa for like a month or two. Then those articles pass. Then it's on to land disputes in Collingswood, New Jersey. Then those go away. And then there are the weekly appeals for money to support refugees from various places in the world. Then it's on to like a convoluted political stance on a detente to end the Vietnam War. In my mind, this reminds me a lot of Alex Jones. Yeah, he had like kind of a collection of topics that he were his pet topics. And he also just had so much capacity. I mean, the capacity is what reminds me the most of Alex Jones, just like volumes of content. But you probably noticed by now what wasn't in any of these articles or in any of the 20 boxes. New Vietnam. Yeah. There were no plans for No Vietnam anywhere in this archive. There's just no mention of it at all. So in some desperation, while we were still at the library, we went back to the original Wikipedia article just to give it a glance again. Do you remember the second person in the article? It was uh, Giles Pace. This is the Green Beret. This is the Green Beret. Yeah. Yeah. So I basically just was Googling Giles Pace and found this article on JSTOR that had a little quote at the beginning of the article. It was about film or something totally unrelated. And in fact, I'm still not totally sure why they chose this quote, but that excerpt said, The Reverend Carl McIntyre stands in the weed-choked fields behind his L. Mendel Rivers Convention Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, and leads a tour of the future. The Vietnamese village will be over to the left, says the fundamentalist New Jersey preacher, and the Special Forces A attachment camp will be to the right. Beside him, Giles Pace, a 31-year-old Chicago ironworker outfitted in camouflage fatigues and green beret, expands upon the vision. The village will be authentic, Pace promises. Rice patties, ducks, chickens, those animals with their humps on their backs, what do you call them? Ellipsis. Oh my god. <laughs> and that quote, that little excerpt on this totally unrelated paper is attributed to Newsweek, September what? 1975. So this is the first new mention of a Vietnam project with McIntyre and Pace we've been able to find anywhere. Yeah, Newsweek Newsweek certainly has searchable archives somewhere. You would think oh. so, but they don't. It's so Not crazy. Not prior to 2010. How is it you can find anybody's old Zanga blog, but you can't search <laughs> Newsweek from... I don't understand. So I got an eBay... And I got this. I have in front of me Newsweek from September 8th, 1975. Uh, on page 21, Enterprise, New Vietnam. What is going up at Canaveral these days is nothing less than a Vietnamese village, quote, like our boys went into during the war, says McIntyre. And even the war will be simulated. 300 acres with five abandoned buildings that his Reformation Freedom Center bought for $14.5 million a year ago and had found little use for until Vietnamese refugees began streaming into Florida. McIntyre promptly sponsored 56 of them, mostly middle-class businessmen, artisans, and former Air Force officers and their families, and housed them in his Palms East apartment complex. Wait, so the market opportunity that he saw here wasn't like, oh, people that are pro-Vietnam War. It was like, oh, there's all these refugees coming in from Vietnam and right. Florida. 
Yeah. What if I came up with something to do with them? Right. It's so crazy. And what else could you do with them but make them relive this war? Well, there was one other thing he found to do with them. They have opened a Viet Arts factory that turns out ceramic elephants, frogs, and Christmas trees, and they are launching a carpet weaving operation with wool donated by the minister's flock. Oh my god. This is just like one of his many like little ancillary side hustles. Yes. It seemed like Carl McIntyre had uh, a lot of plans for how to employ this group of Vietnamese refugees that he had sponsored. And actually, this came up in my conversation with Dr. Espiritu. She told me that this kind of employment was really pretty common uh, for Vietnamese refugees. I think that the public understanding of the Vietnamese was that this was people were just desperate and they would do anything um, in order to make a living. And so I think that Americans did feel that they were, in fact, um, doing the Vietnamese a favor by allowing them to come to the U.S. and allowing them to get jobs. The Vietnamese who were able to get out of the country actually were generally upper middle class, and they'd never done any kind of low-paying labor-intensive work before. So you had them come here, and of course many of them faced not only underemployment, but sometimes just misemployment. They are doing things that they would have never done. So this is a really extreme example of that. Carl McIntyre started off these folks in a factory making pottery and other crafts, and then I guess opened it up to this new Vietnam project, a job that no one should have had. Uh, The article goes on to further describe what new Vietnam would have been like. Moat, colon. The blueprints for New Vietnam, as McIntyre has dubbed it, call for patties with irrigation dikes. About 40 banana and palm trees are being brought in to, quote, give the place atmosphere, says Pace, along with an equal number of Vietnamese. They will dress and act in picturesque fashion, but will not actually live in the village. It's a fantasy land type of thing, Pace explains. Whose fantasy? Yeah, I don't understand Yeah, what the, what the clientele is. Right, yeah. exactly. The compound will contain concrete barracks and a small museum exhibiting weapons used by the commies in Vietnam. That was a quote. Oh, my God. So, like, what he created instead of, you know, what Vietnamese culture would actually be was just what he thought that it would be based on his very limited understanding of it. And so it was actually their nightmare. Yeah, so uh, it goes into a little bit here. So. Um, it says, tourists are going to love this, McIntyre insists, and every penny will go back to the Vietnamese. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. The Bible says, love your neighbor. We're taking them in our arms and giving them our love. Pace is plainer spoken. They'll work anywhere for a paycheck, he argues, and this will be work that, <laughs> and this will be work that won't be in competition with anyone else. There's nothing offensive about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. Yep. Just no one asked, nothing but, uh, offensive here. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure the reporter asked. Uh, Well, it was definitely offensive, at least to one person. Um, The article here ends, The Vietnamese themselves aren't so sure. Kong Nguyen Binh, once a wealthy Saigon businessman and now supervisor of the Viet Arts Factory, says flatly that he wants no part of New Vietnam. My wife won't walk around that village in a costume like Mickey Mouse, he declares. Dignity is only part of his objection. We want to forget. We want to live here like you, Binh says. We don't want any more war. Now, 
All of this totally lines up with basically everything that was in the bathroom reader. In fact, I'm willing to bet this Newsweek article was the only source that the Bathroom Institute used to do this write-up in the first place. Uh, the, the facts are basically copy-pasted from Newsweek. There are two bylines on this Newsweek piece, Sandra Salmons and Bill Belleville. So I actually called up Sandra. She had no recollection of the story at all, though. Uh, so Bill Belleville must have been the person to have spoken to Carl McIntyre. He was unable to actually speak to us directly, but we heard through his daughter that he does vaguely remember the project, but has no recollection of any details. So it is still a little unclear to me uh, what actually made the project fall apart. So uh, I can't get through to the actual article, but in 1975 in November, Bill Belleville wrote an article for a Florida newspaper with the headline, 16 Refugees Abandoned McIntyre. Oh, wow. Ah. How did we not find this before now? Gotta get that article. Yeah, let's get some newspapers. Okay, we're back now, and uh, we've got our hands on this article. This is from the newspaper Florida Today, from Cocoa, Florida, uh, on November 8th, 1975. 16 refugees abandoned McIntyre. 16 Vietnamese refugees, quote, packed up, then ripped off their sponsor, fundamentalist preacher Carl McIntyre, during the last two weeks. The manager of the Palms East Apartments, where the refugees had been living, said the four families left, quote, on their own accord, they're not working. Dave Hulley, manager of the McIntyre-owned apartments, said the New Jersey preacher was spending $6,000 monthly to support the refugees. We saw that. Hulley said the apartments vacated by the refugees were destroyed. They stole everything, the sheets, pillowcases, pots, and pans. So it sounds like that's the answer then, right? The reason that New Vietnam didn't happen was because he couldn't get Vietnamese people on board. Yeah. The thing that prevented it ultimately from coming to fruition was just that he offended all of the people who he assumed would be working for him at New Vietnam. I just think he saw them as vulnerable and he was used to taking advantage of vulnerable people. I mean, I'm sure he was used to opposition. Like, I'm sure his radio station in Philadelphia had more people who didn't like it and didn't like him than he had followers, but there was always enough people that he could really rope in and take advantage of. Yeah. So today, obviously, there are lots of theme parks in Central Florida, but New Vietnam is not one of them. In the 70s and 80s, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese resettled in the U.S., and Central Florida was actually one place where a Vietnamese community formed. In fact, I learned that there's an area in Orlando, in the Mills 50 district there, that's often referred to as Little Vietnam. Shopping and dining in the Mills 50 district offers a rich insight into the history and culture of Vietnam and into the community here in Orlando. This is from a radio report on WFME, a public radio station in Florida. Tinung is actually one of the very first Asian markets in town, and it kind of all just grew from here. From so that's Ricky Lee, a food blogger at the site Tasty Chomps. I was able to find Ricky and uh, actually spoke to him about the Vietnamese scene in Central Florida. But first I told him about the New Vietnam Project. 
Um, I think it is pretty ridiculous that this uh, was uh, going on, especially with the public opinion at the time of the Vietnam War, you know, among. So probably whoever created this probably had some issues, I think. So Ricky's parents were both Vietnamese refugees, and his mom got here thanks to sponsorship from a church group in Indiana. I think it was through the Lutheran charities, uh, church sponsorship, and things like that. And actually, my, my aunt is still very close with the sponsor family today. So this was a thing. And, and these church sponsorships were really positive for refugees, and they helped set them up in the United States. But it seems like Carl McIntyre's brand of church sponsorship was a real outlier, and he had some really cynical ideas about how he would find employment for the group that he sponsored when they got here. Carl McIntyre is not some kind of lovable buffoon. Uh, I think that comparison to P.T. Barnum is apt. He had this flair for the dramatic and entertainment, but he was also really manipulative, and he was driven by... I guess, some desire for notoriety and for personal success. I also found a story in the New York Times that said he had basically built an 83-year-old man out of his end-of-life savings in exchange for a promise to take care of him and then just abandoned him. You know, he he caused a lot of people a lot of pain, I think. It's Dr. Balmer again. And, and, you know, it's one thing to find him a risible character, as I do. But, uh, you know, I also acknowledge that uh, he made a lot of people make a lot of lives really uncomfortable. And I wonder what's what, where did those Vietnamese folks who were sponsored over, where, where are they all now? That's Ricky Lee. You know, it would be interesting. Probably many of them probably came to settle in Orlando or even within Cape Canaveral. We couldn't find any records or contact information for the specific refugees who walked away from New Vietnam. But we know that there is a vibrant Vietnamese culture in Central Florida today. I think the community today is uh, a lot about being resilient. Uh, Our parents uh, came here with nothing and kind of want to fulfill their promise of the American dream by going to school and doing well and being successful. We have quite a few second generation Vietnamese who are doing entrepreneurship, who are opening up their own restaurants and and businesses and and kind of doing it their own way. Sounds like there's a lot of cool stuff going on. There is a annual festival, the New Year's Festival, that the community puts on. There's actually quite a few uh, different festivals, and uh, that's a really great way to kind of get a feeling of uh, Vietnamese culture through dance, music, and street food. So you can get a taste of Vietnam while you're here in Central Florida, and it's a great, great event. (laughs) No bullets, hopefully. Under Understood is reported and produced by Billy Disney, Regina DeLay, John Lagomarsino, and me, Adrian Jeffries. Special thanks to Dr. Randall Balmer and the staff of the library at the Princeton Theological Seminary for all their research help. If you want to learn more about New Vietnam and Carl McIntyre, we've got a bunch of additional information and photos that we took at the library uh, of the Christian Beacon and Carl McIntyre stuff up at our website. You can find it at underunderstood.com. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to share it with a friend. You can find links to subscribe, You can find our social media, you can find full transcripts, and a whole lot more on our website. 
And if you have a burning question that the internet can't answer, send us an email. Hello at underunderstood.com. Maybe we'll look into it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.